0: The Mac Observers, Mac Geek Gab number 402 for Wednesday, June 13th, 2012. Seven years of podcasting for your two favorite geeks. Here we go. And welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Can you tell John that I have not had a lot of sleep, and uh, and you could hear my voice do the Peter Brady patented crack right there at the beginning.
1: This You're is doing the Mac karaoke, Observers.
0: right? I did well. Yeah, I just sang one song last night at uh, at the Loops party, but uh, the Mac Geek Cab, the show where you send in your questions, you send in your tips. We provide some answers. We provide some tips of our own. Together, we all try to learn something new, and we've been doing it for seven years successfully together, and hopefully we can do it for another seven or more. Here in San Francisco, California,
1: I'm Dave Hamilton. And here, still in Fairfield, Connecticut, John Braun. So,
0: yeah, uh, obviously I'm out here at WWDC this week. And uh, we'll talk a little bit about that, but then we've got uh, a pile of your questions and tips and cool stuff found queued up that uh, that hopefully we will make a respectable dent in uh, as we go forward here. But uh, but you want to you know, what? let's go right to the questions, John, and then uh, and then we'll pick up some of the WWDC stuff afterwards. How's that sound? Splendid. All right. And since that's not at all what I was planning to do, I don't have all this right on my screen, but. I can make it happen very quickly. Bob writes, I have two items, one for me and one for my neighbor. My neighbor is just starting with Apple equipment as he purchased an iPad 2. He bought the device from Best Buy and the salesperson there sold him AirPlay, reportedly saying this will work with your HP printer. I think he means AirPrint. Uh, In short, it didn't. As a longtime Apple slash Mac user, I'd like to help him out. Could you please provide an overview of the various print options for iPad users, which are the most versatile, and is there a best option out there? All right, so let's, let's tackle that, and then we'll, then we'll go after his second question, which is about iPhoto. Um, so iPad printing, and, and really this is iOS printing, so it could be your iPad, your iPhone, your iPod Touch. Uh, they all share the same printing framework. And it's weird. There's a knowledge base article that, of course, we'll put in the show notes that lists officially supported AirPrint printers. Now, these are printers that will advertise themselves in such a way that uh, when on the same network, your iPhone or iPad, your iOS device will see them and print directly to them. And it's not a terribly short list, but it's also not a terribly long list. And, uh, And it only supports printers that are networkable and not even all of those. So uh, it, it, it's, it's very frustrating because printing is not uh, – it, it it, there, there is no other way of getting things to print officially. Um, there are a couple of uh, third-party solutions, though. We talked about one, the Lantronics X print server, which I think you saw back at Macworld and I played with in the office, John. And, uh, and that will make any networked printer work. You just hang this device off your network. It'll go find all your network printers and it will share them with your your iOS devices. So so that's, that's certainly worth checking out if you have a network printer. If you have a printer connected to your Mac, you want to check out Ecamm Network's Printopia, which will sim- do the same thing, but your Mac needs to be on because the printer's connected to it. But it will share that printer in a way that uh, iOS devices will be happy to print to it. I'm not sure why Apple... Uh, doesn't do more on this front, but
1: perhaps they think they don't
0: need to. I don't know. Any uh, any thoughts on this, John?
1: Oh, we're certainly getting enough people that want it. <laughs> so, right? Yeah. Uh, I don't see why you wouldn't want to. Because I mean, to me, I mean, network printing is is a pretty standard operation. I mean, I'm printing to my you know twenty year old laser printer here over the network, so I I I can't see why they can't enable this functionality in in iOS. I think the uh, what you mentioned the Xprint server. Is, I think I want to want to tell our crowd here. while well, I'm trying to deal with listening to myself echo. Was it 99 bucks or 129 or?
0: Uh, yeah, I think it's. Uh, I'm bringing up
1: the page right now. It's taking okay. a while because my right. computer is uh, doing more than one thing right now.
0: Yeah, John, John is sending out to the stream, which we're doing again at MacGeekeb.com slash stream. So you can always join us there. We're going to try and do that every time. It's just an audio stream, and we've got a little chat room up there. And the chat room will continue to get better, and the audio streamer thing will, will, uh, will continue to evolve as well. But uh, with me being on the road, John is, is uh, thankfully offloading some of that responsibility
1: at his okay. own. Okay. Um, no, I Go. think it's one one fifty. Okay. I see a few devices come up here. All right. But you can check and their uh, I... store.landtronics.com, and you, you can see the various uh, devices they offer. But no, I think Xprint servers, yeah, $149.95 or $150, which uh, in lieu of leaving a computer on all the time to offer that up, I, I think that's a good deal.
0: Yeah. And, and I would say watch this space. I, either, there are uh, other products, uh, other companies interested in in helping you solve this problem. So. So watch this space. There's, there is stuff coming, which is good. Uh, all right. Question number two is my issue, Bob says, is with iPhoto. I'm trying to create a reference library by exporting my almost 20,000 photos, including some video. I start the export and it stops periodically with a message saying unable to create file name. I then have to search through my iPhoto photos and restart the export with a photo a few photos later uh, after the last photo exported. I've run into this with various options of export, current, JPEG, TIFF, etc. Any ideas as to how I can create an export with all the photos? Once I've exported my photos, it looks like I should create a new clean iPhoto library by importing the photos that were just exported. Uh, yeah, so this actually may have changed on Monday. I haven't messed around too much, but you know we're getting these, these uh, sort of synchronized library possibilities between iPhoto and Aperture now. But... Uh, but even still, I would turn to Fat Cat Software's iPhoto Library Manager. That's going to be a way better solution than trying to do this yourself. It is purpose-built to move photos from one library to another or copy photos from one library to another, and then, of course, you can remove them. And, uh, and it manages the whole process for you. So, so definitely go ahead and check that out. That, that may be the easy answer to, to your problem. It's great software for, for all of you out there. I, I've been using it for years and uh, I don't do a ton with iPhoto, but I do wind up having to move photos around between libraries. And uh, and it's awesome. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't live without it. So,
1: And my thought on this is it sounds like there may be some damage to the iPhoto library. Now, if only there was a way for you to try and repair that damage, and the good news is that there is. Uh, we'll link to the article, but uh, in a nutshell, what you do is when you launch iPhoto, you hold down... Option and Command, and you will then get a dialog that says "Rebuild Photo Library," and it gives you uh, probably about six options. I don't think I click them all at once, but I'd, I'd probably go through them, and they'll do various things: uh, repair the database, fix permissions, rebuild the thumbnails. My guess is that there's something that's munged a bit. So what happens is that it it kind of gives up, or that there's something wrong with the volume you are writing to. Though I, I I think it's more likely that the photo library itself has a little hiccup in it and and this should be able to fix it
0: yeah i bet that's right yeah good thinking i forgot about that all right awesome moving on to andrew and uh well we'll let andrew tell us i think we'll let andrew tell us is my computer going to behave here
2: hey john and dave and possibly pilot Pete. it's andrew from polchester connecticut and i'll give you my brief story here. Hopefully, I'll keep it short for you. Uh, I have a big 27-inch iMac that I do most of my heavy lifting with, uh, which is not the computer in question, but it's kind of important to the story. I also have a 2006 white MacBook, uh, 2 gigahertz Core 2 Duo, upgraded to 4 gigabytes of RAM, computer notices 3. You guys know how that works. And uh, I've been kind of on a quest to Make this the machine the most it can be since I have my, my uh, new iMac 2011 at home. Uh, the next step, I just ordered a 128-gigabyte uh, SSD from OWC, and uh, obviously I'm going to want to transfer the data on the spinning drive in the MacBook to that solid-state drive. Uh, I know, obviously, it'll involve carbon copy cloner, you know, moving some data over. But I think I remember you guys mentioning before that there was some kind of issue with the recovery partition. Like, you needed to move that as well or create the partition and move it over, something like that. It wasn't as simple as just cloning uh, Macintosh HD over to the SSD and uh, getting going. You know what I'm saying? So... uh,
0: Uh oh. Well, we've lost his audio. Hopefully, that doesn't mean we've lost everyone's audio for this show. Uh, I'm still but yeah, uh, well, uh, that's good. Hi, John. Um, but I think we got enough of his question. So the concept is migrating to SSD, and yes, with Lion, it's very important to have that recovery partition. Uh, and no, when you just do a normal copy over, it does not copy that. Uh, recovery partition and that's actually going to be a problem for two things number one the obvious if you want to use the recovery partition to either repair or reinstall or do some maintenance uh, but the other is that i think back to my uh, find my mac not back to my mac find my mac requires a recovery partition exist before you can turn it on uh, yes which is strange i'm not exactly sure of the reasoning behind that but but it is what it is and, uh, and so you, you want that recovery partition. But the good news is uh, Carbon Copy Cloner is the software uh, that will – I think it's the only software at the moment that will uh, easily clone your recovery partition to a new drive as well. So just make sure you do that. And I think, I think we have a uh, – I think they've got a – it's not a knowledge base article. Maybe an FAQ entry about just how that works, and we'll make sure to put that in the show notes for you too.
1: Can really? You, do you have anything, John, here? Yes, I do. Well, there's another thing here. So I guess the question is, do you do you need it? And I would say for a couple of things you do, as you pointed out, Dave, for uh, Find My Mac, you do. Because I remember when I, when I was uh, reviewing another hard drive, I didn't copy it over. And I noticed this in the iCloud preference pane. It said, well, you can't do this because this isn't here. I... In the back of my mind, I seem to recall that if you want to enable file vault, I think that may require the recovery partition as well. I'm, I'm not 100% sure about that. Maybe not.
0: Now, that would, that would actually make sense.
1: Yeah. I don't know if it's to put the keys there or something. It, it seems in the back of my mind, I recall, that you may need that. But do you absolutely need it? I don't know if you absolutely do. Now, there is a tool that you can use to, to, I guess, create a standalone one. I don't know if you've used this, Dave, but uh, there's, a, there's something called Lion Recovery Disk Assistant 1.0. Okay. Ever yeah, but that,
0: this? that yeah, I have, but that only works if you already have one, right?
1: Right. I, I guess I, what I th- I'm pointing out is just this is a tool that lets you create a standalone uh, recovery device, I guess. Yeah, I think just that's a right. a piece of information. Yeah, it's yeah. not gonna it's not gonna create it on a drive that doesn't have it. Yeah, in that case, as you pointed out, you need something like our Pal Carbon Copy Cloner. So, well, and actually,
0: Carbon Copy Cloner is not gonna do it either if you don't already have one. You 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 need to have a drive that has one, and then and then either Apple's utility can create a standalone one, or Carbon Copy Cloner can can uh, you know beam it over to another drive. But uh, but but yeah, the only way to to create one is from Apple's installer. So all right. Uh I want to talk about our first sponsor, John, which is barebones software at barebones.com with BB Edit. Uh BB Edit is a mainstay in uh in Mac Text editors. Uh they've they've been developing BB Edit for over 20 years now. And BB Edit is really so full-featured, it's ridiculous. There's no way we could talk about uh, all of its features. Editing text is is obviously at its core. As you're editing text, you, if you've listened to this show for a while, you know that it will automatically sense what language you're in. And it could be languages like Objective-C or JavaScript or HTML or PHP, lots of different things and it will automatically color on the screen the text file remains just text but on the screen it colors and highlights and formats the the code based on what language you're in so it can make things really really easy to go through it's also really cool because it has an ftp client built in so if you're editing say a web page that you have and it's up on a server somewhere Uh, You can pull down the file, but you pull it right into bbEdit. There's not a two-step process. You don't have to download the file first and then open it in bbEdit. bbEdit opens it across from the FTP server directly, and when you hit save, it saves it back to the FTP server. So it's just doing this on the fly automatically. Once you've got it open and you're hitting save, you don't even have to think about it. Uh, it just blasts it off and saves it to the server. So you can make a little change, hit save and go reload in your web browser. And boom, you can see it right there. Uh, BB edit is available. You can, well, I would recommend you go check out the, uh, the download right from, uh, the, the, the trial version, right from barebones website at barebones.com. Uh, when you're ready to buy, it's $49.99 there. It's also $49.99 in the App Store, so in the Mac App Store, that is. So go ahead and check it out. And, uh, and one thing, if you do download it from the App Store, you can go to Barebone's website and install their free command line tools. And what those let you do is if you're at the terminal and you type bbedit space and then a file name, it'll actually open that file in the full graphical version of bbedit. Uh, that's something they can't distribute via the App Store because it puts commands out on your system. But uh, but it will work with the version that you got in the App Store. So go ahead and check it out, barebones.com. All right, John, moving on to Carl. I
1: think you're going to read Carl's question for us. You think so, huh? Well, that was my hope. <laughs> Hi, guys, it's Carl here from Belfast in Northern Ireland. Uh, first question. When I enter a new event into iCal, the default duration setting is all day. That's okay by me. However, when I then uncheck the all day checkbox, the timings are automatically adjusted to a 10 a.m. start time and an 1,800 end time. My particular problem arises when, in a hurry, I only have time to enter the event start time. If an event is scheduled for late evening, it means that the default eight-hour durations extends to the next day and so on. Let's see. Obvious solution is take the time to correct it. And I don't think I need to read the rest here. So I'm going to help solve this problem here, and this problem is actually specific to the view that he's in, and I'm going to tell you what view that he's in, is that he's in the month view, because this is when this happens. So if you're in the month view, and you double-click on the calendar to try to create an event, the default duration will be all day. If you're in the week or the day view, it'll be an hour. So that's one way to get around this. Here's the other way to get around it, though, that I didn't know until I did the Google Foo. If you're in the month view, so you double click, and then you start entering the name and event, and then you also enter the start time. So say I want to have breakfast with you at 8 a.m., well, type in breakfast, 8 a.m., and it'll start at that time and have a duration of an hour. That's almost too clever for me. And that I never knew I could do that before. Of course, it takes the time out once it goes on the calendar. But, but it, it's smart enough to realize that, well, that's the start time you want for the event. That's pretty uh, the cool. The other thing is that you can change the default of event time from one hour to something else. One hour is the default for anything that is on the order of hours. Uh, and you can either hop on the terminal. Now, I have an article that I found that goes over some of this stuff as well. But you can either go in the terminal, and it's default, space, right, space, com, dot, apple, dot, space. And then the whole default duration in minutes for a new event. And then you can enter another thing. Or a lot easier is to use, uh, my pal, the uh, pref pane called Secrets, which also lets you enter this value in the Secrets pref pane. So you can change it from an hour to however many minutes you want.
0: That's awesome. Hey um uh, you know you you mentioned that, that the calendar has some of these uh contextual smarts while your or iCal does as you're as you're putting stuff in. One thing that's worth checking out is uh a relatively new piece of software. Uh it came out in the last probably I guess the last year called uh, Fantastical from FlexiBits. And uh and this is a little menu bar applet um um uh, and it not only shows you your calendar but also lets you do uh this contextual event creation and you can start just typing things and you know that the demo they show on their website is you know lunch with john at 123 main street on thursday and boom it fills it all out as it should be the location in the right spot you know the the time of it they they pick up that you said lunch so they put noon and uh and and it it's actually really really cool it it's it, it it takes what, what you've seen there in iCal, John, and makes it like magic. So um, so definitely worth checking out. It's only ten bucks uh, to buy it, but you can you can go and try it out from their website at FlexiBits. So definitely worth checking out. These these guys are uh, they're they're on to something here. It's 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 good stuff. So uh,
1: do you Moving want... on? Go ahead. Well he had two questions, or are we not oh. bother with the second one.
0: I, 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 I wasn't even... A, I, I, this was all you, so I, I don't know. We can, we can do the second one.
1: All right, well, it's a surprise question. Do you want to, do, you, do, you want to do the second? Well, sure. Well, uh, I, I Go, can ahead. Can yeah, Go ahead. Yeah, surprise question. Go ahead. Well, No, here's what he says. So when he opens and closes a f- PDF file in preview, and then he drags it to the trash, and he attempts to empty the trash, the, trash will, or the finder will say the operation can't be completed because the item is in use. In order to, to uh, successfully empty the trash, he has to close Preview. So what's going on here?
0: So um, on, the, on the surface, and I don't necessarily have the answer, uh, but on the surface, your Mac is smart enough to not let you empty the trash, i.e. completely remove a file, if some app still has it open. Uh, and so that's what's happening here. Is for whatever reason the OS thinks that Preview still has this file open. Now I tried this and it did not do this for me. So uh, I wasn't able to easily figure this out. But I, I think you could look at, gosh, I don't know if iostat from the terminal would uh, would do this. No, I don't think it would. I think that's just going to give you bandwidth. Um, I, I, I'm trying to think, John, and maybe one of our listeners can help us. That there, there is a, there is a terminal command in Unix that'll tell you what, uh, what apps have what files open. I mean, I, I guess we're, the OS is telling us that it's Preview that has it open, but it just seems strange that that it would do this. I don't, you know, it's one of those things where I would start by cleaning my caches, or or at the very least just boot up in safe mode once, uh, to to kind of make it do all of that stuff. I don't know that that's going to solve it, but it seems like one of these wacky little problems. Did you have any thoughts on this one, or, or are we uh, are we swimming in in dark water? <laughs> I, I don't know what that means, but it seemed
1: like the right thing to say. That yeah, sounds great. Um, I mean, you can look in Activity Monitor, and that'll yeah, but that, well, that'll show you what files a process has open. But yeah, you don't want to click right. on each process to. Slide oh, but it, I mean, it's telling
0: us, it, or it's telling him that it's preview. Oh, that's preview, right? yeah uh, and it stands to reason because it was just open in preview but it just seems weird that um i you know i wonder i if it's in like a separate window or a separate desktop but i mean it 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 sounds like carl understands what he's doing here and it, I, I i believe him when he says he's closed the window out so that's that's kind of the weird part i don't have a magic answer if somebody out there does though that would be uh it would be helpful to all of us. And of course, especially to listener Carl. All right. Moving on. Unless you, unless you have anything else on this one, we'll move on to move on to to Marco here. And, uh, and while I'm reading Marco, I will ask you to check your, uh, your bandwidth over there. You started to sound a little Skypey. I don't know if that's me being on the, the 4g wireless or if it was you. So I'll just, I'll I'll mention Um, that. It's not terrible, so it's certainly livable for the show. Yeah, shuttle. it
1: shows but I'm at I, 16, I think. I'll talk more, yeah. maybe.
0: Okay. Um, all right. So uh, Marco writes, "Airdrop is a cool way to send files in your network, but you have to have. Uh, but if you have one Mac that is not on the very short list of supported Macs in Airdrop, you are out of luck. I have one Mac Mini that is not on the list, but I would like it to work with my MacBook Pro 13-inch that is supported by Airdrop." I found many articles on the internet that show how to enable airdrop in unsupported Macs. This is great, but is it safe to use? And he's talking about using a command line thing where you just do a defaults right uh, on the, on the command line. We can link to an article about it, but uh, it essentially tells air uh, airdrop to, to look at everything. And then it, and then it works. Uh, he says, what do you think about this? Is this safe to do? And, uh, and the answer? My answer is, yeah, I, I think it is safe to do, I've I've used it uh, with unsupported Macs with no problem. I don't use it a ton, but um, but I have used it and it it works just fine and and it, it is handy uh, you know as a way to get files back and forth. So uh, so I have it turned on on all my Macs and haven't had any real problems. Uh, I don't know if you've used it, John. I think I think you've got one supported Mac and one unsupported Mac for for AirDrop. AirDrop AirDrop shows up in the sidebar of of. Only Lion, right, John? Not Snow Leopard. In um, the I, I only have
1: one unsupported machine where for kicks, I enabled it, but I don't have any other machine at this point for it to talk to.
0: Oh, so. right, because your other machine's on Snow Leopard.
1: Which yeah. that
0: may have but, to uh, change. Uh, it, yes, I think it's going to have to change, yeah. Um, so, yeah, Airdrop shows up in the in the sidebar. It's pretty cool. If you haven't ever clicked on it, just go over there, and you'll see other machines show up in there, and you can just... Blast things out, which is pretty pretty cool. So, no 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 further thoughts on that, John.
1: No, I haven't used it. So, <laughs> all right,
0: all right. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, how could you have used it? That's right. <laughs> uh, okay, so let's move on to Chris. Chris has a follow up question to our mail discussion in a recent show and chris writes in mac Geek 398 you discussed in detail the setup of mail.app to work better with gmail given gmail's imap implementation it seems you have to jump through quite a few hoops to make them all play well together at least the solution seems inelegant for this reason i prefer to use only gmail via the web interface on any computer or via the gmail app on my iphone I completely understand using mail.app for pop and IMAP email that isn't Gmail. However, I'm curious as to why both of you as Gmail users use mail.app for your Gmail accounts. Is it simply to have all of your email from every account in one place is offline access critical. I'm just interested to hear your thoughts. All right. Uh, Yeah, Chris. So for me, and, uh, and perhaps John, you're in the same boat. Maybe not. We'll pass it back and forth. But for me, it's the, it, it's both local storage and management. I'm, used to mails interface. I prefer mails interface. And so that's how I like to access my email, but I'm also more comfortable and certainly very accustomed to having a local copy of all of my mail. Uh, so, it, and, and maybe that's a, a concept that's now been kind of deprecated with everything being in the cloud all the time. But, uh, but I do like, I, I do like having it local. So, uh, so that's why I use mail and, and it is occasionally certainly on my laptop, it is nice to have offline access, uh, you know, sometimes on an airplane or, or if I'm just somewhere where I don't have um, access to a web browser and I can't pull up, you know, Gmail's interface. So, so that's why I do it. Uh, John, you?
1: I'm with you. And to me, the reason that you want the local copy, now you may be asking yourself, how do I do this? And I'm going to tell you, at least with MailApp is that if you're in the accounts pane and then you click on advanced, you're going to have a checkbox. In preferences, right? Correct. Preferences, uh, accounts. And let's see. (sighs) Where is it? Advanced. And there's going to be a little pull down. Keep copies of messages for offline viewing. And I have it set to all messages and their attachments. Because as you pointed out, Dave, the cloud is both the solution, but it's also the problem. And that what if the cloud's not there? Then you're screwed. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. And that's concerned me about any of these services that isolate or or require you to access the cloud. And I've heard people shake their fist about many of them. Like there are certain games now, I think, where they reach out to an activation server, even though you're playing a single-player version of it, or some other stupid things here. So having a copy in both places to me is... uh, just a fail safe, if nothing else
0: yeah 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 absolutely absolutely all right uh let's see let's let's talk let's talk about joel here john because joel has something very timely to discuss with us joel says i'm still running snow leopard on my mac but plan to upgrade to mountain lion when it comes out do you have any guidance on whether I can upgrade from Snow Leopard right to Mountain Lion or if I'll need to go to Lion first? If I need to upgrade to Lion before, can I jump before? Can I jump to Mountain Lion uh I'll probably do that now, but I'd prefer to skip that entirely if I can. So, good news on uh on Monday at uh, at their at Apple's keynote, they announced uh not only the pricing of Mountain Lion, which is only 19.99 US, uh but that that pricing and presumably the updater and the installer will update uh, from either Snow Leopard or Lion. So you're in luck. Uh, you can you can jump straight from Snow Leopard to Lion. I will say, and I have not tried this, so this is simply based on uh, the experience that we've kind of all had with, with Lion. I would wait until after Mountain Lion comes out, uh, but I would assume until we learn otherwise that the snow leopard to mountain lion migration uh, upgrade rather uh, is going to be kind of fraught with similar difficulties that we see when going from snow leopard to lion. So my advice would be a clean install, follow it. So uh, a clean install, but that means clone your drive first, because you're going to wipe out your drive, make a clone in your drive, do a clean install, and then use migration assistant to bring your data and apps back. Uh, that seems to have worked very well with lion. Uh, and so would be the safest route to take with mountain lion. Obviously once it comes out and we hear a lot more from a lot of users, maybe we'll find that they've fixed whatever wackiness for back, lack of a better term was, was out there with the, the upgrade from snow leopard to lion. So that's, that's, that's my advice on this, John,
1: anything from you? No, Now, Do you think they are going to allow okay. the same wackiness of uh, burning the uh, disc image file?
0: I would imagine. I mean, it's going to be a Mac App Store only kind of thing. So, that, right. you know, that, yeah, I I think that I think we live with that now. Well, you know, it's kind of how it goes. They're not going to distribute it on 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 DVD anymore because they just announced a bunch of new computers that don't have DVD drives. So, you know what I mean. Mr. I do. Braun? We can talk
1: about that. Yeah. Okay. It's a fish shake yeah. coming up. Okay. <laughs> well, they're offering Before some machines without f- a lot of things. Before
0: we do the fish shake, I want to talk about our second sponsor, which is a new sponsor for us. And it's Apple and they make an app. Uh, they actually make it for, for Mac as well as iOS uh, called pimp your screen. And what this is, it's ninety nine cents in the uh, in the iOS App Store. It's designed to work with both your iPhone and your iPad. And the the idea behind the app is that allows you to customize the look of your iOS devices by offering backgrounds uh, that make it look like you have app shelves and uh, or icon skins that kind of go around where the icons are. You can, if you're into it, you can have your stuff look neon or a little more subdued, uh, customized home screens. So what what they've done here is they've gone and and, uh, they've got this team of professional designers and they've created all these awesome backgrounds that when your apps are laid on top of them, it really kind of comes into its own. You've got to see this to, to really appreciate it, but it, it's pretty cool. So go check out some of the screenshots in the, uh, in the app store and it's 99 cents. So it's, it's totally worth downloading and and playing with. And, uh, and then, you know, they also have a, a Mac version that kind of is built to do the same thing with your desktop, and that's in the Mac App Store for, uh, for $2.99. But go get, the, go get the iOS version now, because that's, that's only $0.99, cents, and I think that's half price from what it normally is. So they're doing that just, just in concert with the, uh, with the ads that they're running with us here. So, again, it's from on and it's called Pimp Your Screen for, uh, for iPhone or really for iOS, but it's just pimp your screen in the iTunes app store. We'll put a link, of course, in the, uh, in the show notes as a, as a sponsor link, because that's how we do that sort of thing. And it's only 99 cents. So, uh, spend a buck and have some fun. Apple on's pimp your screen. So, uh, so we started talking about WWDC, John. So let's, let, let, let's, let's let that, Let's let that roll. Um, you, you clearly have
1: some thoughts on this. So go. Well, the, the what I don't like... So the good news is they introduced new MacBooks. Uh, that didn't surprise a lot of people. Right. And actually, I'll give them a thumbs up on the one aspect here. So the new... Well, they have two now. Or I guess they have four, two. Well, But they have now what I'll call a continuation of the classic MacBook Pro line. And that looks pretty cool. Because not only do they have Thunderbolt and Ethernet and stuff like that, but they now have... Thank goodness, USB 3. I think they pretty much admitted, you know what? Thunderbolt's really not catching on. <laughs> I mean, I think you and I recognize, I mean, I can count the number of Thunderbolt peripherals on one or maybe two hands and maybe one or two feet. It, it's so <laughs> limited. It's growing, but but it's still such a small yeah. segment of the market. Whereas USB 3, I mean, I've, I've already tried a USB 3 uh, device. And they're not quite right. as fast, but the, I think they're also not quite as expensive given the same capacity. And it's already taken hold in the PC world. So, so that to me is... Right. So I would like that aspect, that the latest one, and I think now that may nudge me. Because, yeah, I was like, well, you know, they have a high-speed port on the new MacBook, but it's Thunderbolt and it, it, it's limited. But the Retina display machine, this is the one that makes me shake my fist. And you probably know why. Because of soldered the It's soldered in RAM. And you can only oh. choose, as far as I could tell, from one of two flash drive configurations, or SSD configurations. So the good news is it's very thin and very sexy. Yes. And I think they had a video showing them, you know, trying to break it, you know, that it was very tough. So, So I think performance-wise, it's... It's a nice machine, and of course, the display is going to be beautiful once everybody catches up to that. I guess they got to, you know, get the display drivers to work, or, or people have to tune their software to work with the Retina display. But to it, me, it, the yeah, lack develop, of it,
0: like like it was on iOS, I, I'm I'm sure it's going to be right. the same that the pixel the pixel density is doubled, so you've got two pixels per point as opposed to one. Or I mean, that because that's how it was on iOS. So. Yeah, yeah, So, and, and app developers will have to, to
1: enhance things. That's right, yeah. But I don't like the direction, though they're taking it with, with other pieces of the hardware. But the direction that the RAM you get and the SSD you get is what you get, I don't like that. And I think it also doesn't have a gigabit Ethernet port. Uh, I guess you you can get that through Thunderbolt, which, well, that's nice, so... So I think yeah if I'm, they know, they've actually either one of those I would steer away from that machine because I don't like what you get is what you get and the regular MacBook Pro again has relatively more ports oh and FireWire also I know some people you know are saying John get with it you know FireWire is an old relatively old technology but I still have FireWire 800 devices or 400 with an adapter so if I had to choose between the two I I think I'd go for the 15 inch uh MacBook Pro non retina display. And I noticed that they kind of shun the 17 inch. I, I don't know if that form factor is going to be long for this world. Uh
0: well y- you know it's cer- they certainly don't have a 17 inch now. Uh but it is important to note that the the resolution of the 15 inch MacBook Pro I think is greater than the resolution on a 27
1: inch iMac, right? slightly, maybe you know, ten percent or something like that. Um, I think you get a high res s- option. I think they have a regular resolution and then a high res screen. I think there are three choices, right
0: on uh, on the MacBook Pro. Yes. Uh. Well, the the Retina display MacBook Pro is one. Oh, no, I
1: meant I meant the other one.
0: Oh yeah, 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 yeah. Um. Well, no, I. Can you get different screen resolutions yes I think i I think you're getting twelve eighty by eight hundred on the thirteen inch or fourteen forty by nine hundred on the fifteen inch. I don't think oh, that's right, no, you can on the fifteen inch you can go up to the the high res they don't call it retina because it's not but but that's right. you can go up to the sixteen eighty by ten fifty that's right that's right, good catch, but you know you mentioned firewire and gigabit Ethernet. And as you said there's a Thunderbolt to GigE adapter. There's also a Thunderbolt to FireWire adapter. You can get Thunderbolt to FireWire 800 now that they announced on Monday.
1: Yeah, so that's good. So so, so 29 Benefit bucks. of the yeah, so the benefit of the Retina display one is that you know it's thinner and lighter, but you may have to lug around some adapters if you use something. Yeah, but you you
0: but, but you'll have all that extra room because of all the the sure. money that you've liberated from your
1: wallet right <laughs> No, I understand why they did what they did but sure. again the the fact that there are things in that machine that used to be user fiddleable and are not kind of bothers me
0: yeah we're we're definitely seeing the concept of the MacBook air uh you know trickle yes. down or trickle up right trickle across to the macbook pro uh you know yeah but um so yeah you can i think you can get it with either depending on what model you buy you can get it with with two there's two flash storage with the high-end model is either 512 or 768 for a 500 five hundred dollar premium uh but that's a lot of flash storage um and i think the the smaller one it's either or the slower one is either 256 or 512 right? Is that right John? Or is it only 256 on the slower one? Yes, it's uh, only 256 on the slower one. Yeah, I'm looking at the store right now. So the 2199 one you get 256 gigs of flash storage and that's it. You can go 8 or 16 gigs of RAM and and it at $200 and like you said soldered in RAM. And is that is that true? There's no the RAM is not expandable? I didn't realize that. I've been sort of, you know, heads down a little bit.
1: Nope, not the Retina. No, I've seen a few, several places. Uh, we'll link to a few of them, but I think I saw an iFixit article and uh, I think Gizmodo okay. and a few other people. But they've dubbed this the least uh, serviceable Mac ever. <laughs> wow. And then I think they even have the, right. the pentalobe screws. So number one, even to open the darn thing, you've got to get a special screwdriver. Oh, that's crazy. They, they, they
2: Why do they do you. that they don't, to us,
0: John? They don't.
1: They know what's best for you, Dave. They don't want you touching anything.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, that's how it goes. Uh, all right. I, I know I had some other things from. Uh, where the heck is my? I had a. I had a whole big list of things from. Well, I'll toss a few out. WWC. So the updated aperture. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, keep going. Kind of.
1: Yeah. I think the big deal with aperture. So you know, they changed the interface. They renamed some things. I, I think the big deal. Is now they have what I guess they'll call a unified or shared photo library, so you can now share a photo library between Aperture and iPhoto. That's kind of I think that's pretty cool. I mean, before right? you could any kind of do it in that you could from Aperture reference your iPhoto, but I was never comfortable doing that. But right. now it's official. but now
0: it's it's. It's And it's all the same, right? Any changes you make in one are then reflected when you open the other app, right? I mean, it is one unified library that they both see, right?
1: Uh, as far as I know, I haven't tried it quite yet. Okay. I okay. had to wait. I'm, now, I'm pretty sure of that. Is, now, this is kind of weird. So, um, like, oh, Aperture 3.3, that's great. You know, upgraded to it, ran it on my MacBook Pro where I keep all my photos and have Aperture 3.3. And it did a background update of, like, 10,000 previews. It was taking a real... It took a little while. Wow. I was doing something else. In addition to saying, okay, by the way, I'm changing your library, and once I do this, prior versions of Aperture won't be able to understand it. They're like, okay. But then I went to my Mac Mini, which is running Snow Leopard and is also running the App Store, and I said, oh, well, upgrade to uh, Aperture 3.3, and it's like, nope, nope, nope. 10.7.4 required. Oh, interesting! So apparently, uh, the last version before yeah. three point three is the last version of Aperture you can run on Snow Leopard, and, and I, I think well, someone confirmed it was Aputure, this in form, or at least you can't update was it. Was Aperture up? Was it uh, no? Was it updated
0: for the Retina display? Was that one of the apps that was updated for the Retina uh, display MacBook Pros? Because if it was, even, those ship with ten seven four. And I, I, I would. It would stand to reason that there's some smarts in ten seven four that are required to make that magic happen. So that that may be the sole reason why. But you know, they also want to get you off of snow leopard.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And I was thinking I was going to have to upgrade the podcast machine in the studio office, of snow leopard two, because. Uh, I, obviously, I'm I'm going to be leaving MobileMe behind at the end of this month. And Barebones promises that we will see an iCloud sync capable version of Yojimbo before the MobileMe sunset. And, you know, I think you and I can count down to that. It's like, you know, a half a month and a day left. Um, but it hit me that I'm going to have to move that machine to Lion in order to to get iCloud syncing on it and of course I rely on that for for what we do here so I guess I got to do that but that's okay that's all in the name of progress John we must move forward that's what uh, our benevolent overlords at Apple tell us anyway one step forward two steps right no 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 that was Paula Abdul that said that our benevolent overlords at Apple never never said the two steps back Did you expect me to quote Paula Abdul or reference no. Paula Abdul? Good. Uh, speaking of iCloud, we have, a, uh, we have a question. So we'll jump to the question. If we want to jump back to some of the WWDC stuff, we can. Uh, Steven posted actually on our Facebook wall at uh, facebook.com slash He says, here's a question with some urgency. I've been procrastinating on dealing with the end of mobile me. Welcome to the club, Stephen. You're in good company. Uh, well, now force the conversation to, i the, the conversion to iCloud is coming. And before my data crashes and burns, I'm hoping you guys can answer this. I haven't found the info clearly explained anywhere. My hardware is an iPhone 4 with iOS 5.1, a 13-inch MacBook Pro with Snow Leopard. I'm not interested in upgrading to Lion. I don't like a lot of the changes. I can't risk issues with Final Cut Pro 7 running on it. I'm sure I will someday, but only when circumstances force it. If I switch to iCloud and do not upgrade to Lion, I don't understand exactly what I will lose and how I can work around it. The truth may be out there, but it's not all in one concise place. It seems like I lose everything except my email address. None of the sync services appear like they work uh, without Lion bookmarks, contacts, calendar, photos. Is that correct? Is switching to Google for contacts and calendar the easiest thing to do? I already have a separate Gmail account. Okay, so... uh. If you move to iCloud without going to Lion, you do lose all of that sync functionality embedded in your Mac. But you can still get at the data, the bookmarks, the contacts, the calendar, through iCloud.com's web interface. Uh, Mail will still work from within Snow Leopard. iCal will not let you sync with your calendar, but BusyCal will. BusyCal, it does not care if you're on Lion or not. There is a way, and we can put a link in the show notes to the... uh, to the, the, the BusyCal article that talks about this. So it, it is third-party software that you have to go and buy, but uh, but it will let you use iCloud's calendar with this. Uh, but your idea of moving to to a Gmail or a Google-based uh, calendar and contact syncing is is fine as well. That will continue to work in Snow Leopard. It will continue to work with your iOS device, and uh, and it is platform agnostic. So I'm sure you'll run into some quirks because everything syncs a little bit differently but i actually sync with both i sync with all three currently on my ios devices i sync with google i sync with mobile me and i sync with uh icloud it and and for contacts and calendars and it uh it works great so uh, y- yeah if you want to stay with snow leopard i would I, I think google is a great idea for uh for that any thoughts on that john Nothing. All right. Take us to Joshua, unless you have something else about WWDC you want to rant about.
1: Let me look at the reports. Uh,
0: You know, okay. So I have, I have one thing I was sitting in a session today and watching these Apple engineers talk about something. And it was, it was some iOS thing, Uh, but it hit me. It was like, gosh, you know, less than four years ago, we didn't even have the option of writing our own apps for ios right i mean this is this is a really really new thing and yet now i mean there there are frameworks out there this is like it's a mature development platform for ios and and you can do a lot of stuff with it and it keeps getting better and it keeps getting uh more and more extensible and 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 apple's really interested in in making sure developers have access that they want within apple's bounds i mean they have their their kind of concepts and ideas about how far things should be able to go. But within that box, they really want to enhance things. And it's amazing to have a platform that's four years old. That's uh, that's this robust. And of course the reality is this platform is way more than four years old. I think it's more than 24 years old, right? It's like 26 years old. If you go all the way back to the origins of uh, objective C with, with the next. Right. And, uh, and then that got me to thinking about a thing I went to on Monday night Michael Johnson, who is Doctor Wave, um, I think he's the creative director at Pixar. He held a fundraiser fundraiser at the uh, Cartoon Art Museum here in San Francisco, and he focused on on next. Um, it was sort of a next re- retrospective, and uh, and he had a couple of next people talk. Andrew Stone spoke, and Will Shipley spoke, and uh, and and these were the guys you know that that weren't working at Apple, but they were kind of the fringes, sort of around the third party people. Sort of around uh, or not they weren't working at Apple, but they also weren't working at next uh, but they were sort of in the fringes of developing this stuff um, and they've really been working on this you know Andrew Stone in an interview with us at the Mac Observer I don't know three or four years ago, said he'd been developing for iOS for 25 years and um, and it really is true you know this this stuff it's 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 pretty amazing that we've got a platform that that is that old and is that robust and will Shipley actually told the story at the, uh, at the event about how, um, Rhapsody, which is what we call OS 10 now was almost killed by Steve jobs after, um, after, you know, he came back to Apple, which was interesting because that was sort of the technology that they bought from next. But, um, but, but he, and he, and, uh, will and Steve actually had a little email exchange about it. And, and, um, in that, I think in part helped kind of save, uh, save what we know as OS 10 today. But, um, but, it, but it's interesting that, that this stuff goes, you know, that it, it really does go that far back and there's people that really want to make it work. So it, it's good. It's uh very interesting. Anyway, just hit me that we have this platform that's ostensibly less than four years old and, and yet has all this great stuff in it. So I don't know. There you go. Mr. Braun. Yes. You still with me? I'm with you. And do you have anything to? Uh, did you have anything no. to add about WWDC announcements no. or anything like that? Not really. All right. Then take us to Joshua.
1: All right, we get to share on this one. <clears throat> Joshua asks. I've successfully opened up ports at my school network that I can access my XServe from home, both using screen sharing and AFP, which is Apple file protocol or way to share files or access files on that machine. I like being able to browse server files from home using the Finder, but I've heard that AFP over the Internet is not secure. Is there a more secure way that still preserves using the Finder interface? And, you know, I think he's right on this. Because I was digging around and trying to figure, well, is AFP secure? Because, you know, when you connect to an Apple share server, it says, well, I'm connecting and, you know, give me a password. So there's some security there. And actually, I did a little digging around. And as far as I can tell, normally the exchange of the password is secure. So someone can't look at the line and figure out what your username and password is on the server. And how can you tell this? Well, I found this file. It was buried in my... Uh, library preferences folder. com.apple.apple dot share client and there's actually a couple of fields in there, and one is AFP clear text allow, and on my machine it's disabled, and another AFP clear text warn, and that's unchecked as well. Uh, Maybe that should I've be seen checked.
0: that warning. Yeah,
1: yeah. So if you if you're sending at least a password in clear text, and I think a lot of things do this, not just file sharing, but I think also the browser. If you're in Safari and for some reason you're connecting to a website and they didn't implement security properly, then they'll say, whoa, whoa, I'm sending this in an insecure manner. Are you sure about this? So, But as far as I know, the AFP protocol itself is not secure. So what do no, you do? No, it's not. And well, I think neither there's is a couple of the things. screen sharing, which is VNC. But now I give him an answer, and I think I'd i like you to dig into this, Dave, because I think you've actually done this, and then I have – a solution for a third-party piece of software, but I think in his case now, one he's mentioning Xserve. Now, if he's running an Xserve, then I'm almost positive that's running OS10 Server, right? It's safe, safe assumption. Sure, yeah. And As far as I know, OS10 Server has a VPN server. Correct. So, one thing he could do is, now I don't know if he's administering the machine. If he is, then he should be able to set up the VPN server and then set up on the Mac in system preferences network, add a VPN network interface, and then everything else should be secure, right?
0: Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, if if you, you tunnel through the VPN, which is secured, then yes, you can then anything you do is going to be secure. That's right. Yeah. So, yes, that, that, way, would, that little, would be one way to do it.
1: The other way it's a little geekier, and I found an article that started to describe it. Now, I've actually done this, but I think you've done this, Dave. And there's another secure protocol. So the VPN uses things like IPsec and IPTP and some other you know, acronyms. Um, but SSH, <laughs> or Secure Shell, another acronym. is another way to securely connect from one computer, Mac or otherwise, I think pretty much Unix-based. Well, no, pretty much every major platform has an SSH implementation. So I think if you make an SSH connection, you can then tunnel the AFP or screen-sharing traffic over that. Now, I don't know the specifics, and I think you've done this, Dave, haven't you?
0: I've tunneled over SSH. Yeah, you you have to... Um you would you would make it so that you can ssh into the uh, machine in question so instead of opening up port 548 and pointing that at at your um machine you'd you'd open up port 22 in your in your firewall or your router and and you connect to the machine over 22 which is ssh and then from there you can you can build a tunnel um there's shell scripts available to kind of walk you through that process but um but it's, you know, SSH is built to do that, and, and it, it does work. I, I think, I don't know, I was going to say I think the VPN is easier, but I say that because I have a VPN set up. So for me, it is at the moment easier, but I don't know that it's from the ground up. I don't know that one is necessarily easier than the other. The nice part about setting up a VPN is it's sort of this more universal thing. With SSH tunnels, you have to, you have to sort of create a tunnel for each thing that you want to do whereas with a VPN you connect over the VPN as long as that connection is appropriately secured then anything you do and anything you could think of doing in the future it will just automatically for the most part just automatically work and and so it's it it's a little more well it's a lot more robust from that standpoint so that that's kind of why I like the VPN and um and yeah if you've got an OS10 server of any kind you can, you can run your own VPN if you've got um, those Buffalo routers uh, that we've talked about, uh, any of the routers that run DD-WRT as a firmware, but even some uh, Buffalo routers with their own firmware in them will run, uh, allow you to run a simple um, VPN. And that, that's, that's really all you need. It's really handy. So, And I think back to my Mac is secure. That, that I'm pretty certain of.
1: Yes. When I did try to implement that, yeah, it would – I would see various secure processes come up because I was running uh, my pal Little Snitch, and it would say, oh, I'm running – like, I think one is raccoon and some other okay. low-level commands that are setting up the secure tunnel. So, yeah, last I checked, I think, it's, Mac yeah, Mac I think is also.
0: Yeah, which makes sense because it's built to be used over a, a WAN, over, over the internet. You know, whereas um, AFP and, and even VNC are ostensibly... The assumption is that you're going to run these locally. And if you do want to run them over the internet, well, then you're going to build an SSH tunnel or a VPN or something that, that kind of handles the security separately. So,
1: that's, Yeah, look at this. I just looked it up. Raccoon is a key management daemon. Whoa. Okay, that sounds serious. Nice. So, now, the other thing that I could... Um, Fun stuff. Mention is a piece of software that I came across that is really simple and it's called TeamViewer. Oh, yeah. I like it because, well, a friend of mine who does support mostly for people that aren't very tech savvy says, you know, I need a zero configuration, something where I can just have them run a program and then I can tunnel into their machine. And these guys offer something that will let you do that. So they actually offer like a quick install version of their – I'll call it the server, which is the machine that you want to connect to. And you run their software. And then what it does is actually registers with their server. And then it generates a unique – or prints on the screen, I think, a username and password. And then what happens is you tell someone else that you'd like to connect to you, those values, and then that phones home to their server as well. And it virtually connects the two. And that's working through – I think it's working through both port 80 and 443, which, of course, is SSL and secure. And it'll let you do viewing. And I think it'll let you do file transfers as well. And it was pretty good. You know, well, I think any screen yeah, share no. is kind of sluggish. But uh, I, I think they're one of the better – and for non-commercial use, I, it, it's a freebie. So I think that's worth checking out, teamviewer.com yeah no, very good point
0: yeah this is good for you know not just for this one specific purpose for it, so this is kind of you know everybody heads up here check out teamviewer.com it 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 really it works very very well we've had a lot of listeners recommended over the years and um yeah it's an easy easy way of of remote controlling and, and and securing that remote control in a in a in a very simple way so yeah good call excellent john all right uh Moving on and finishing up the uh, question portion of the show with Sherwin. Uh, Sherwin writes, John and Dave, I'm a longtime listener and iOS user. I have a question. I'm planning to buy my first MacBook Pro, especially with the new refresh, but I have only one concern, and that is the lack of a numeric keypad. I input lots of numbers. On my Windows PC, there is the function plus numlock to turn some of the keys on the keyboard into numbers. I'd like to know if there's something like this on the MacBook. John, I turn to you. Can you help, Sherwin? Yes.
1: And you can do this on That's the Mac good. as well. You hold down the function key, and you can press certain keys, and you get a virtual Numeric keypad. Really? Unfortunately, it's not on by default. Uh, I don't know. I think they removed it at some point. So what you want to do is you want to get something called key remap for MacBook and it's from pqrs.org. And i verified that it works. Really? Installed this, uh, rebooted my machine. It actually alerted me to the fact, because we have that little script we talked about, Dave, that installed a couple of uh, launch statements. So I think it's installing something at a kernel level, because I guess it has to remap the keyboard. And then basically once I reboot it, now it does a whole bunch of other stuff, all sorts of other key remappings, but without doing anything, Once you reboot and you install this, if you hold down the function key, then you get the virtual uh, uh, numeric keypad, which I think is around the uh, uh, 789-UIO-JKL area on the keyboard. Wow. Interesting. Dude, that's pretty cool. for Lion. Yeah, so for people that are still doing that and don't want to – Either get an external keyboard. I guess that's the other answer. I think maybe an Apple external keyboard could do that, or or a standalone numeric keypad. But why do that? So the only caveat is you got to hold down the function key, but it sounds like that's not a big deal. Yeah, right. Oh, very cool, man.
0: Thank you. Uh, thank you for finding that. All right, we're uh, we're running. Uh, well we're we're running toward the end of the show there are two things i wanted to uh, point out one was one that i stumbled on and then the other was uh uh, from a listener uh when you're visiting a web page the web servers have a way of kind of behind the scenes telling your browser how long it should cache certain things uh when you pull down a web page, you're probably pulling down. You're certainly, almost certainly pulling down more than just the HTML of the web page. You're likely pulling down images uh, and and other assets that you can see. But you're also pulling down other assets that maybe you can't see. Maybe little JavaScript files, CSS files, things that might help define the layout of the page. And as each of those comes in, the web server tells your browser, hey. Uh, Even though the web page might change every 10 minutes because it's a news website or something, uh, you know, the the CSS, the the style sheet and the JavaScript, you don't need to worry about that. Uh, Next time you reload the page, you know, go ahead and keep that for an hour or even a month. Right. And so uh, sometimes you can load a web page and see things kind of funky. And certainly you can use the Safari empty cache menu to clear all of that out. But if you just want to clear it for that one web page, holding down the option key and going to the uh, Uh, which one is it? Yeah, I hold down the option key and go to the view menu and choose reload page. This is one of those instances where you do not see the impact of holding down the option key. In the menu uh, itself, but trust me on this, and I, I know this because we do this in development with TM all the time. In Safari, holding down the Option key while choosing Reload Page will force it to re-download all of the assets for that page, no matter what. So it can be handy if you see a web page acting funky. You might have gotten a stale cache thing going on. So uh, Option Reload is uh, is your friend, and it's you know, that's my tip to you this week and luciano has a cool thing and so we'll call it cool stuff found uh luciano hipped us to the existence of something called the consultants canary and uh and we'll put of course a link in the show notes but the uh the consultants canary uh operates on the principle of uh the first thing that as a tech support person so either a professional consultant or you know, someone helping a family member, uh, which I know many of uh, you uh, wind up doing because you listen to this show and you become your resident expert. And then, um, you know, suddenly you're the one who uh, everybody calls. Uh, and the first thing that that we've all kind of learned to ask is, have you installed anything new recently? And of course, users lie. They always say no. Uh, and, and really, the, the, it's not that they're lying. It's just that they don't know. And so what, um, what consultants canary does is it shows you, uh, what aftermarket software, including like plugins and quick look stuff and spotlight stuff is on a system and it just lists it. It doesn't disable anything. It doesn't delete anything. It just shows you a list of all of this stuff. And it's really kind of handy because you can just look at it and say, Hey, you know, maybe you've seen a plugin cause trouble before, and you like you could be like, "Hey, that's right, that's on here." It saves you the time of scouring through the system and finding all of these things. It just shows them to you in one fell swoop in a little terminal window, and uh, and then and then you, it's up to you to kind of do with that as you please. But uh, but it's a really really handy little tool um, made by some folks here in San Francisco, I believe. So uh, it's free to download. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Called Consultants Canary. And uh, I think that, that Anything more that you want to add Before I uh, try my luck At bringing the band back in here, John? Mm. No No, huh? Okay Well, let me see what I can do about the band here We had that weird problem With the other audio comment
1: So there's the band Do you hear the band, John? I hear them Actually there's one thing. Okay. I just saw on Twitter. Oh gosh, somebody just lost their job. Some guy that's wrote it. Well, I think he did, but it was an article. I think it was Wall Street Journal and the guy said CIOs are going to have a big problem now dealing with all the new uh, retina display books because they're going to take up more bandwidth. Think about that. Well, that, that I, mean. I mean in part
0: that's true. <clears throat> no. Right? No, no, they're, n- they're not going to take it more bandwidth. Uh, I'm missing, I'm missing bandwidth. the joke
1: clearly. Yeah, I mean, it, for, for, it, is, for loading who web pages... the wrote the article implied that having more pixels on your screen increases the amount of network bandwidth that your computer uses. Did you well, but that? see, that's
0: I do. It, it, if it so, uh, web developers You're can. No, no, no. Here, no. This because this is something we've been talking about at TMO, and we have not updated TMO for for Retina display. Most websites aren't updated for Retina display, but it used to be. But prior to Retina display, so uh, you know, I'm going to kill the band
1: here for a second because uh, because this is this. Is I, I don't think it's going to have um, as as massive an impact as the writer of this article thought. I mean, it's not like it's going to increase network bandwidth 100-fold and that your network's going to crumble because now no. everybody has a retina display MacBook. That was what this guy was kind of implying, and I think most people said, I no. don't think you really understand how computers work. Yes, yeah, so I understand what you're saying is that, so a higher yeah, but, resolution... but let me, explain, let me explain this to our
0: no. to our, to, our, to our listeners. Okay, so um, it used to be that if you had, let's say, a, a 100 by 100 pixel graphic uh, or a 100 by 100 graphic, and I'm just going to call it that, and I'm going to leave pixels and points out but if you had a 100 by 100 graphic that was 100 by 100 points on the screen which was also 100 by 100 pixels uh, and that is true right up until you get to these devices that act as retina displays and now you you have to abstract points no longer equal pixels right it used on what well they do on one-to-one screens but you cannot assume anymore that points equal pixels so If you have a 100 by 100 graphic, you have to now think of that as a 100 point by 100 point graphic. And on a normal screen, that's going to be 100 pixels by 100 pixels. But on a retina screen, that 100 by 100 graphic could have 200 by 200 pixels. And it's up to you as the web developer to actually code the web page so that you put them both out there and, and... and you let the browser the user's browser decide which one to pull, and it's in ostensibly anyway smart enough to to know that I'm on a retina ma- machine, so I should pull the two x version of of that and and that works on the ipad and and uh, and the iphone the the at least the the retina versions of them so uh, so, yes, I mean, there there will be more bandwidth. I I, I don't think it's um, going to crater the Internet or anything. Um, and I don't think CIOs are going to have to run screaming to mommy about uh, where they're going to find all this extra bandwidth. But it, but it it does mean that that websites are now um, at least have to consider whether or not it's it's something they want to do and code with these with these extra images. So. So, yeah, I mean, and the same is true of apps, I would assume. Right. I mean, it, you know, if you're building apps for well, they even said it on on Monday, right, that they've coded some of their pro apps for for retina display. And that means probably going through and updating all the images inside of of their apps, just like you had to with with iOS devices. Right. So.
1: So there you have okay, it. OK, bring in the back. Be- yeah. I sent you a link to the article, but the overwhelming okay. majority of comments were were. Not positive.
0: (laughs) (laughs) All right. Uh, Let's see. You can reach us if you have a question or a tip or cool stuff found, or really if you just feel the need to reach us for any reason whatsoever, uh, you can email us at feedback at And In case you
1: didn't hear Dave, it's feedback at MacGeekCab.com.
0: I fear that our, somehow we have got a huge gap uh, between us here. So I don't know how the show's going to be. We might have been running all over each other for the last 20 minutes of the show. But it is feedback at Uh I don't think our, our latency is as tight as we thought it was. And I think that's due to the audio circuitry on this, uh, this MacBook Air. But we will see. Uh, or you will have already seen. So our apologies if, if John and I have been running over each other a little bit. That's the reason for it. And, uh, and we'll know that, but of course it's going to be far too late to fix it for this show. But, but we will check it out and, and know it for the next time we're doing the mobile version. So that's our apologies in advance in reverse, if that makes any sense at all. Uh, you can call us at 206 666 Geek, which with delay
1: is John 4335. That's right.
0: Uh, you can find us on uh, Facebook as we said before facebook.com slash MacGeekUp John go ahead and tell them about Twitter
1: I'm John Ephron. he's Dave Hamilton Pilot Pete is Pilot Pete MacGeekUp is Mac MacObserver is MacObserver I think that's it all right
0: uh, you can, let's see the, uh, uh, We want to thank Michael Johnston From the We Have Communicators podcast He converts this show uh, To AAC for us and for you Cashfly provides all Of the bandwidth To get the podcast from us to you And the podcast marketplace uh, This month includes BB Edit from Bare Bones Software PDF Pen from Smile Gazelle to sell your Mac and pimp my screen, of course, from Apple on all through Backbeat Media. And uh, and that wraps this up. And uh, so we begin another seven years of doing the podcast. Pretty amazing, John. I never expected to be doing this seven years later, seven years ago, but I'm very happy that we are. Me neither. Have fun. Uh, we'll be back uh, middle of next week, I think, with MacGeek 403 Premium. Uh, have fun. Don't get caught.